Welcome to the New Books Network. Fifty years ago, anarchism was written off by some as a set of outdated, idealistic ideas that had no contemporary relevance. Uh, Then came the protests at events such as uh, World Trade Organization summits, protests by people who either described themselves as anarchists or were described by the media as such. And it all gave rise to the question, has anarchism actually got a future? Well, Ruth Kinner has written The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me. And I think, you know, we always end up, this is the future of, but we always end up going back. And I mean, in anarchism, you sort of have to. So tell us how it all began. Well, I think the, the the general general view is that the starting point of a of a, a current within socialism that that labelled itself anarchist can be can be dated to about 1870 1871, with the split in what was what was called the first international or the International Working Men's Association, uh, which was an organisation that had been set up in 1864. And uh, it, 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 it included a lot of very disparate sort of voices who thought of themselves as socialists. And it had been rumbling on, arguments had been rumbling on in the international for a while. And then in 1871, 1870-71, the Paris Commune uh, sort of erupted. And this sort of catalyzed a sort of a division within the socialist movement uh, between people who followed Marx uh, and people who didn't follow Marx, who called themselves anti-authoritarians uh, and later adopted the, the label anarchist. And what was the basic dispute between Marx and, I mean, would the leading proponent of the alternative point of view have been Bakunin? He was. It was indeed Bakunin, who who was a follower of, of, of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who had actually um, been active um, in the 1840s, in 1848. He was the guy who wrote the book, What is Property?, uh, to which the answer he gave was theft. Uh, and he'd been, I suppose, the leading voice, I mean, before Marx in the in the European socialist movement. And Bakunin was a sort of a follower of, of, um, of Proudhon. And his dispute with Marx was partly personal, I think, uh, but also it turned on the, the question of, of the organisation of the international socialist movement and the extent to which the groups that were that were part of the the international, which were were nationally based, so there was a, there was a Spanish federation, there was a Swiss federation. Whether these groups should have autonomy within the international to determine their actions according to their contexts, or whether, as Marx proposed, there should be a more formal structure and, and if you like, an adherence to a to a formal program or or what what became a party line. Was this? I mean, there's always a contradiction in in, in Marx between historical processes, you know, doing their thing, and activists encouraging those processes. Was that issue, the extent to which you could rely on history just to move events forward, was that issue part of the dispute? I think there was a, I mean, it's part of the dispute insofar as I suppose Marxism, or at least the way that Marxism was understood by by the anarchist critics at the time, Marxism implied the acceptance of a of a theory of history which had already through which it was possible to chart the the development of capitalism through revolution to socialism, and the anarchists disputed that theory of history. And the the strategies that were devised on the basis of that analysis of of um, of evolutionary change. 
So I don't think it was a matter of whether activists had latitude to 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 act. I mean, I think you know you've got people like Lenin within the within the Marxist movement who who clearly think that you know there's a there's a latitude for activists to do things, but it was this basic idea of whether there was a, a course of action on which a strategy could be developed. And and what was the anarchist? So can you sort of summarise for us the anarchist position in these international meetings? What were they What were they saying? So the I mean the argument that erupts in in the 1870s is specifically um, about federalism. Uh, and the extent to which socialist organisations should be decentralised uh, and federated according to local agreements, if you like, and based on, on principles of, of mutual aid and mutual support, mutual defence, and how far the alternative uh, uh, proposal, how far the, the members of, the, of, social, of international socialist organisations should be obliged to follow a, an official line. Yeah, but no, I'm thinking more in terms of you know the final goal of all of this, which would be, let's say, the abolition of abolition of the state, let's say, or, or or some sort of you know whatever the Marxist vision was compared to the anarchist vision. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm with you. So so I suppose the the one of the issues that the anarchists had with the Marxist vision was that Marxists. From at least from their perspective, emphasised the role of economic forces, the role of productive forces in the transition from capitalism to socialism, and therefore spoke up or, or exaggerated, I guess, the the extent to which socialism was going to be dependent on industrialization and the seizure of capitalist plant, if you like, or, or the nationalisation of, of the means of production. And the anarchists sort of saw this as a sort of, as a rather one-sided view. And part of the reason that they did so, is, I mean, particularly those who were coming from places like Italy and Spain and Russia, was that they were working in, or they were coming from places which had highly rural economies. And what they feared was the sort of the proletization of the, of the workforce. And they also feared a transition to socialism that was going to be based really on on processes of production that were that were di- that were dirty designed to produce things that weren't necessarily what you wanted to produce and that they would also reinforce patterns of exchange and trade across the globe which anarchists thought were problematic is is it right to say there was an, another element to anarchism which marx didn't really have in terms of individual personal development, a a vision of that? I think that becomes an issue, I mean, particularly when you have women who are joining the the socialist movement who who understand liberation from from the point of view of a sort of a critique of patriarchy, if you will, uh, and for whom the sort of the domestic oppressions became very real. and, And it seemed much more difficult to accommodate... I mean, not that there weren't attempts to do so within Marxism, but it came much more difficult to accommodate those kinds of individual personal aspirations for liberation within a very rigid class analysis uh, and much easier to accommodate them within anarchism. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I was wondering, I'm probably just wrong about this, but is, is, is there a sense in which Marx was more collectivist and the anarchists more individualist? That's a really tricky question. I mean, there's a, there is, there is definitely a current. I mean, there's a, there's, it's, it's, it's very usual to to make a disti- distinction within anarchism between communists and individualists, or in contemporary political theory between social anarchists and and individualists. I think sometimes that that division is is too stark. 
So I think, I mean, the, the anarchist starts off from the proposition, if you like, that um, individuals are sovereign and individuals have to make their own judgments. And there's a, if you, if you begin with that proposition, I think the idea of being uh, designated as a member of a class uh, who has obligations or who has, whose actions can be dictated, for want of a better word, by the demands of a, a, a greater good or you know, a class interest, that becomes a, a point of real dispute. So from, from, uh, from the Marxist perspective, I think the, the anarchists' commitment to individual sovereignty seems to suggest a kind of a, you know, anarchists can never be bound to, to any kind of collective agreements. I don't think that's the case. But I think anarchists want to ensure that any collective agreements that, that individuals enter into can be revised, can be changed, that there's no greater obligation that the individuals undertake except uh, those obligations that they, they accept for themselves. I see. So just using that phrase, um, individual sovereignty, and have, are you aware of this book, The Sovereign Individual? No, I'm not. Uh, it's a shame. I'd be very interested to know what you think of it. It's, it's a... It's, um, Rather amazingly, by the father of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, interesting. <laughs> who's Lord Rees-Mogg. Yes. Uh, I should say for people who are not familiar with British politics that Jacob Rees-Mogg, the son, is this sort of very controversial British politician who was very keen on Brexit and is you know, a very right-wing member of the Conservative Party, so has very senior jobs. His father wrote a book about... Uh, it was co-authored about individuals breaking free of governments and how there would be, I mean, this is very much a paraphrase, an elite of sovereign individuals. So we're, we're talking the sort of Bill Gateses and Zuckerbergs of the world, but this was all written amazingly about 30 years ago, you know, who would prevail and be rich and powerful. And it, it, I mean, I just hearing you use that phrase made me think of it and wonder whether almost Lord Rees-Mogg, who was the most conservative uh, former editor of The Times and so on, was actually a bit of an anarchist. I don't think anarchists would think that that, that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is an anarchist. And I guess the difference... They're his dad, between, I'm thinking. Yeah, or his dad. Um, <laughs> and I guess the difference comes in the commitment that, that anarchists have to, to non-domination. So, I mean, the anarchist, are, I mean, the anarchist commitment to, to, to individual sovereignty can be traced back to people like William Godwin uh, or in America to Josiah Warren. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a principle that lends itself to to the resistance to tyranny. That's the point of it, that, that it's your individual judgment that counts and not somebody else's judgment of what you should do. So to be enslaved from an anarchist point of view is to be beholden to somebody else's judgment of what's right for you or what, what your duty demands. And, and, and the, the, the commitment to individual sovereignty is a, is a, is a, a fail-safe, if you like, against the, the possibility that somebody else can command your actions by their whims. And that trans, yeah, I'm mean, sorry, but that that translates, if you like, in in contemporary or in modern anarchism, nineteenth century anarchism, that translates also to a commitment against dominations of 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 of, um, of rich and poor. So the the capitalist is an exploiter, but also someone who can effectively command your time because. Uh, they have money that you need in order to sustain yourself. That's a form of enslavement from the anarchist point of view. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So so Mog would be the enslaver. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, okay. Well, 
when you've described this, the, you know, the early days of anarchism, the disputes with Marxists, and you know, suggesting there are these different threads of anarchism, how, how live were the disputes? The, how splittist was it all? Um, it was it was it was it was pretty uh, yeah I mean there were there were there were significant divisions within the anarchist movement and and there still are I mean the big the big arguments I think come on this issue of 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 organisation and the extent to which I mean there are there are some groups within the anarchist movement who call themselves individualists within in France and in in America believe that. Any kind of, of organisation is a is a potential constraint on their individual freedom. So they interpret their sovereign right, if you like, as as being uh, a commitment to determine um, completely their their own ends and their own ways of life. And this causes problems for those who want to, um, uh, you know, develop mass movements, who want to form unions, who want to organize in ways which may involve some kinds of collective responsibility, if you like. So those divisions are real, but I don't think that they're fatal. So it's, it's still possible, even in the, in the, at the height of the, 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 the disputes between individualists and, and communists within the anarchist movement, you still find that individuals are are helping each other across those divides in order, for example, to avoid deportation, uh, in order to to um, to provide mutual aid and mutual support. So the the factions are real, but I don't think they're they're fatal within the anarchist movement. You've described how this basically began in continental Europe, and then there was uh, you know support for some of these ideas in the United States. Can you tell us about the development of anarchism in the states? Yeah, so anarchism develops in the states. I mean, partly um, independently of of the uh, the European movement. So there are currents of ideas that are coming out of of I guess um, American republicanism and uh, sort of Jeffersonian republicanism, um, which which turn their attention towards the what they see as the, the corruptions of the constitution as it's been implemented through through the U.S. government. And, and Josiah Warren is—he's a contemporary of Proudhon. I don't think they have any connection particularly, but he's a contemporary, and he's sort of arguing similar things to Proudhon. And he—he he, just as Proudhon sort of spawns a, a school of of, um, of activists in in Europe, so does Josiah Warren in America. And there is a kind of a—it's um, it's sometimes referred to as an in, uh, slightly misleadingly as an indigenous American anarchist movement. And 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 this is sort of reinforced to a certain extent by influxes of, of Europeans into America in the 1880s and 1890s. So uh, from Central and, and Eastern Europe in particular, from Russia, from Germany, from Italy. And these groups form their own political enclaves. And so you have a kind of a, a Europeanized anarchist movement and a, a, a pre-existing anarchist movement. And, and these uh, these people get together in 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 various different ways in in particularly in producing newspapers and journals and there's a there's a a pretty fruitful exchange of ideas actually that 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 uh, takes place in America. Some of the the ways in which anarchism is disseminated, I suppose, to other parts of the of the non-European world also takes place through America and particularly through through places like San Francisco, which attract large numbers of of, of immigrants from 
uh, from the Far East who, who come into contact with radicals in San Francisco and then take anarchist ideas back uh, to Japan and China. Really? What, what, years, what sort of time was that? Late 19th, early 20th century. Right. I'd like to ask you more about the 20th century. Just before that, portrayals of anarchists. So this is very much a theme of the movement, isn't it? That everyone's terrified of them. And <laughs> that there were sort of you know, representations of that in, I don't know about art, but certainly in literature. Yeah, that's right, and and they, and the, the 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 negative portrayal of the anarchist actually begins, I mean, almost from from the from the from the Paris Commune and the the idea that the anarchist is a is a barbarian and a, a savage, and I mean, all of the the language that is used is deeply racist, deeply problematic, but there is a a fear of anarchism, I suppose, because I mean, at least partly because the anarchists are the people who refuse to participate in institutional politics. So even if Marxists are, are hell-bent, if you like, on destroying parliamentary institutions, uh, they are willing to engage with them. The anarchists are not. The anarchists are also, I mean, as you said before, I mean, there's a, there's a current of ideas within anarchism, which is about sort of personal liberation and the the, the way that anarchism becomes a platform for, for some, I mean, incredibly important women, Voltaire de Clare, Emma Goldman, Louise Michel in, in the UK, Charlotte Wilson. These are women who are using anarchism in order to advance uh, attacks on the family, on marriage, on institutions that that seem to be so fundamental to the to the operation of of, of civilized life, that anarchism becomes easily outlawed, and these portrayals, I suppose, of the anarchists as as hell bent on destruction, precede the the actual use of violence within anarchist movements. But of course, when when anarchists begin to use violence, this sort of seals the deal, if you like, on the public portrayal of the anarchist as a sort of a, a murderous terrorist who's you know who's got a, a bomb under their cloak and and wants to pull down all of the institutions, everything that we cherish and love. There was a novel about just that, wasn't there, in London? Someone running around with a bomb under their cloak. There are several novels. I mean, apart from Conrad, of course. It's the Conrad. Uh, yeah, was, uh, yeah, yeah, OK. That's the um, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the secret, uh, it's, there's the secret agent. Is that, um, what, is that what the Conrad one is called? Yeah. yeah OK. Um, yeah. But there's also um, Hartman, the anarchist, which is, I think that's written slightly later. There's Chesterton's The Man in, the Man Who Was Thursday, which is about spies and, and anarchists. And some of this is based on, you know, that, I mean, there were, you know, spies within the anarchist movement and there was a lot of surveillance of the anarchist movement. But, I mean, the, the, the truth is that the, the strategies that were deployed against the anarchists uh, were designed to to demonise them. So, I mean, the first bomb that was, that was attributed to, to anarchists in Paris was planted by the police. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. OK, so, so now then, take us forward then. So we're getting to the 20th century and, you know, the movement is, you know, established in the way you've described with all these ideas floating around. How did things move forward at that point? And when did the uh, sort of embrace with violence really begin? The, uh, the height of the violence in France is the, is the 1890s, the early 1890s. And again, it, I mean, it is partly sort of linked to the to the factionalism within within the movement. So there are groups of anarchists who who, for various reasons, I mean, some of these, I mean, a lot of these people are actually sons of of communards. So these are the second, or these are these are this is the generation of youth who have grown up 
with the the history of the bloody week in in Paris in their you know uppermost in their in their minds. I mean, their their parents had been either murdered or exiled, and they never accept uh, the the legitimacy of the republic. But there are a series of of high profile assassinations uh, and attempted assassinations, which in turn provoke or um, trigger the you know, various states to um, execute anarchists. And for every execution of an anarchist, there's an un- another anarchist who pops up uh, who's who wants to avenge the killing of of their of their comrade. And so there's a kind of a spiral of violence that takes part in uh, that takes place in the the 18 yeah 1890s I guess a bit later in Spain and sort of a series of tit for tat ki- killings. I mean some of these I have to say are are also provoked from the, on the anarchist side they're provoked by incredibly repressive measure, measures that are taken in America against, against strikers in France against strikers you know where you have deployments of militias private armies uh, and indeed you know um, the, the 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 regular army uh, forcing strikers back to work or or, or actually shooting them and and, and the, the killings are, are basically vengeance killings and they come to a head I suppose in about 1898 uh, with the assassination of um, Elizabeth of Austria, who, I mean, it's a notorious killing, not only because she's a woman, but also because she's someone who doesn't exercise any particular uh, power or leverage. So she seems to be an untargeted killing. And I think that that causes such a furore that it sort of sobers up the anarchist movement. And I think people start to take stock then about the the negative effects of, of these of these uh, individual acts of violence. Would you say in the first half of the 20th century then that anarchism is is in decline? Uh, did it become less relevant? For me, I think that the, in, in Europe, the eclipse comes in, in 1917, although there is still the revolution in Spain in, in the 30s. And that's, you know, an incredibly important moment uh, for the anarchists. But the, but the success of the Bolshevik revolution undoubtedly uh, Casts the anarchists into the shadows, I think, um, and the 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 energy, if you like, in the socialist movement uh, is diverted uh, towards Bolshevism and and um, Sovietism. So that's a you know that's an incredibly important sort of shift. But you know, my colleagues, my historian colleagues who work on Latin and South America, will tell you that there were still you know very important anarchist movements, mass anarchist movements that were active in in the interwar periods in in Argentina and right across the continent there. So it's it it simply depends where you look. And tell us about the movement in Spain. So the movement in Spain is really interesting, I suppose. I mean, partly because the Spanish had had been the Spanish anarchists had been subject to significant repression in the 19th century. A lot of people had come to anarchism through republicanism, and I guess the context in Spain, the kind of shifts of in power between those who were who were trying to defend the the existing sort of uh, landed elites and those who the social democrats who were attempting to to modernize Spain and reform Spain creates sort of a polarization of opinion within which or which which provides a sort of a fertile bed for anarchist organizing in Spain and and the I mean the anarchists became the the most important um, 
players in the socialist movement in Spain. I think on the eve of the Spanish Civil War, the anarchist union, the CNT, boasted something like nearly a million members. And what happens in the, the Civil War, which fails, I mean, it's an attempted coup which fails, and half of Spain falls under uh, the hands of the Francoists, and the other half of Spain falls under the hands of, of pretty much armed militias who just take their own action in defence of the government, if you like, but also in order to, 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 to push through a, an anarchist revolution. And this takes root in Barcelona and, and the surrounding areas. And for the period of the Civil War, Barcelona is pretty much run as, a, as, an, as an anarchist uh, experiment and uh, vast areas of, the, of the, the agricultural land around Barcelona is collectivised and, and also run by anarchists. I think it's right to say that as well as Barcelona, the anarchists have always been strong around Geneva. Am I right about that? So it's the Jura watchmakers, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole area of, 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 of the Jura in, um, in Switzerland, which was always Proudhonist and Federalist and, and later became a, um, a sort of a, a, a sort of hotbed, if you like, for anarchist communism. And a lot of the exiles, I mean, people like Peter Kropotkin settled in, in that area. He was radicalised by the watchmakers in, in, in Switzerland. Yeah, so there, there's a... There is a, a nascent movement in Switzerland. There's a, there's, you know, there are strong movements in, in Italy as well. Have you, have you observed what those places had in common where it thrived? I think one of the things, I mean, I suppose one of the things that's said about the, the, the watchmakers is that they were, uh, they, were well, they were well integrated. And there was, I suppose, one of the, 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 culturally, one of the things that's said about them is that they have a spirit of, of kind of uh, interdependence. But I don't know whether there's a, a cultural predisposition towards anarchism. I think that's an interesting, I mean, it's one of the things that, that Bakunin liked to say, that there was a kind of a, you know, anarchism was, was, was sort of spoke to a Latin, a Latin spirit uh, and against a Teutonic spirit. But I'm, you know, I'm a bit uh, reluctant to use those sorts of terms. I can find plenty of, of, um, of anarchists who, who come from Germany. <laughs> No doubt. And, uh, yeah, well, let, let, let's bring it forward then. And, you know, I think it's probably right to say that when those big protests happened, at, was it World Trade Organization always or things like that, even yeah. maybe the Davos thing, it came as quite a surprise, didn't it, that this movement was suddenly there and, you know, pretty active and, and lots of people doing this stuff and traveling all over the world to do it. I mean, well, put it, let's put it like this. You, you were probably studying anarchism at that time, were you? I don't want to give you an age. I haven't seen you. We've never met. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe uh, maybe you were studying. Did it come as a surprise to you? It did. And I suppose that was, I mean, that was, that was partly because, you know, I, I get uh, locked into my historical bubble. But, I mean, it, it, it was a surprise. I don't think it was a surprise to, to the anarchists who'd been, you know, certainly in America, who'd been looking at the, the the growth of, of of movements, particularly on the the West Coast, but yeah, it was a surprise, and I guess it that, that I mean those movements, I mean coming in the aftermath of the collapse of the of the the Soviet Union, I guess they became I mean they were labelled anarchists because they took a particular kind of organisational form. So they were apparently leaderless. They were very horizontal. They they clearly weren't run by a, 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 any kind of political party. Uh, they were diverse, internally complex. They didn't adopt um, political um, programs. They pre preferred 
looser kind of what they call benchmarks instead. And they were committed to, you know, to, to, to global justice, which I guess, you know, spoke to a kind of a socialist sensibility. And because of the organisational form, it seemed that they were, you know, they were best labelled anarchists rather than anything else. And I think, you know, from that, of course, there were there were people who who either already thought of themselves as, as anarchist within those movements, or who came to anarchism through involvement in those movements. And so, as as a result of that kind of ac- activism, anarchism was, you know, kind of reloaded. It it it, it certainly enjoyed a, a, a renaissance. Yeah, did, did they self-describe? Now you're saying some did self-describe as anarchists. I mean, because they were described as anarchists by the press, but some would. Well, let me put it like this: How many of them would have known who Bakunin was? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I'm. I, I don't know what the answer to to that would be. I think the the perhaps it's worth sort of sort of fast forwarding to to the Occupy movements that come in 2011. And if you ask then how many people had been involved in the social justice movements who by Occupy identified as anarchists, then a significant number of those people did. But but you're not sure they could trace it back further than that? I'm not sure that they were interested in tracing it back further than that. Hmm. So, I'd, and I think, you know, part of the part of the resurgence of anarchism in the in in recent decades has has focused on trying to to think about how our our existing political contexts are are primary to to activism rather than going back to. Uh, a historical movement and trying to 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 extract lessons from that. Uh, so I think there's a kind of a there's certainly an, an acknowledgement I would have thought or a general sense that there is a tradition. There's an acknowledgement of a tradition within the socialist movement, or, or the, uh, the acknowledgement of an existence of a current within the socialist movement that was anarchist. But how far people are interested in in sort of resurrecting the history in order to to engage in their in their own practice, I think is a moot point. Yeah, it just seems to me, though, listening to you describe all these ideas and then the current movement that they would be. Yeah, the people at the WTO at the um, Occupy movements, they, they would be more interested in social injustice, I mean, economic injustice, and not so bothered by dominance. Is that right? I mean, so they're more driven by the socialist bit of it than the anarchist bit of it. And the anarchist bit of it is just how they're organised, which is not that significant. You know, do, uh, do they have a central committee and that sort of thing? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So, I mean, you know, one of the one of the the the, the the strands that you get within the global justice movement isn't a, an acknowledgement, for example, of uh, indigenous people's claims. So this is not just about economic power. This is also about and about racism. So there's a sort of an acknowledgement that that, that capitalism is is clearly still, you know, uh, a central part of the of the socialist agenda or the justice agenda. But that there are, you know, in contemporary language, there are you know intersecting forms of domination, and and that speaks to a to an anarchist sensibility. And as you look ahead, states are getting stronger, I guess, with technology and the capacity to surveil whole populations. You know, facial recognition, all this stuff, all the digitization, giving government officials incredible powers to observe what everyone's doing. That is dominance, is it not? So, that does that suggest that? Yeah, the future of the anarchist movement is bleak, or that actually maybe that people will react to all this with an embrace of anarchist ideas. 
Yeah, that's a hard question too. I mean, I you know, in some ways, I think you're right. Uh, states are um, they have enormous uh, powers uh, at their fingertips, and yeah, one could say they're getting stronger. But in another sense, you know, it's you know, I kind of look across West European or liberal de- democratic states, and and they're not in in robust health. I mean, institutions seem to be crumbling in front of our eyes. It's very difficult to see how you can sustain some of these welfare institutions whilst also maintaining commitments to to capitalism, if you like. At the same time, there are significant uh, cleavages on race, on you know women's politics, feminism, critique of patriarchy. All of these things are there. Plus, we have a huge uh, interest, I think, in in youth politics, in particular, in in the ecology and and climate change and all of these things. So, I mean, it seems to me that there are spaces for anarchists to enter into and a a willingness if you like to engage in in a politics that that doesn't commit you in advance to a whole set of principles and practices that you might not consider to be uh, your own i mean i think there is a you know that there are convergences across the the political spectrum uh, with anarchism which are really hopeful one of the striking things about your book is that you clearly admire some of the anarchists who you've studied and think that they've you know, thought for themselves, I guess, and, and reached um, you know, quite an idealistic understanding of the world. Can you just give us one individual in the movement, you know, at any time in the movement, who you, who's impressed you? Oh, yeah. There are, I mean, I, I am yeah, deeply impressed. I, mean, I suppose one of my favourites is Voltaire de Clare, um, who was active in um, in America? Um, her father had called her Voltaire because he was a great admirer of Voltaire, um, and she was an educator and a translator. Uh, she was um, one of the people who 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 spoke up in in favour of the the Mexicans in in revolution in 1911, um, who who lent herself to. Uh, to, to women's causes who who argued against what she called sex slavery um, and whose commitment to principle, I think, was just unwavering. So, I mean, you know, the, the classic example, if you like, of Voltaire de Clare is that uh, she was shot three times at pretty much point-blank range by uh, one of the people who had attended her classes, so she knew who it was. And she not only refused to give his name uh, to the police, she also, when he was arrested, he was he was um, uh, not through through um, the information that she'd given, but he was arrested, and she then set up or tried to set up a campaign uh, to support his um, his legal expenses. You know, it's it's unimaginable to me that that someone could be so consistent in their politics. Well, um, I, and I think there is there are so many examples of, of anarchists in, in in history like that, but but she's she's one of the best. Well, let's hope it never. None of your students take such action. <laughs> uh, I'm sure they won't. You're a very very good teacher, very clear, and you've really helped us understand it. So um, I'm really grateful to you for yeah, really sort of impressive, rapid exposition of anarchism. Thank you very much.